Well, welcome. Um, I don't know about you, but every time, I, I don't know why this is for me. Every time I watch these ladies dance, Light of Life's been here, I start crying. I don't know why. Anybody with me in that? Yeah. What is that? I mean, is that just such beauty, right? I mean, it's just like, God, I long to express that kind of worship to you. Now, if I did that in front of you, you would want to run away. But, you know, like, I, I want to do that in my closet at home or something, you know? Just, just express myself to the Lord that way. So let's just take a minute and thank him again. Father, thank you that you are beautiful. There is no one like you. God, thank you for um, prompting our hearts and touching us in, in all in different ways and not claiming that everybody in here was touched the same way that I was, Lord, but different things you used to touch different people and to move us in our hearts, God. So, Lord, we pray that today we would continue in the spirit of worship and that your Holy Spirit would just well up in us to overflowing, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And God, we ask now that you would guide our time as only you can guide our time. Father, I confess to you I can't, but I proclaim to you and to all here who are hearing, you can, and I want to let you today, Lord. Thank you for your willingness to meet with us in this place. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, I'm a little tired this morning. Anybody with me a little tired? Just a little? If some reason wasn't sleeping well last night, my dog started barking at like 5 o'clock this morning. I just love my dogs when they do that, don't you? just want to go out and bless them in the name of Jesus with a big smack in the head or something, you know? We're going to continue today in our series on Philippians. They've been with us now. We're in week four. And in week one, we talked about um, joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost. And we talked about Paul's way in which he actually discovered the joy of the Lord in the way that he interacted with people. Now remember, this is a short letter written to the church at Philippi. And within this four, uh, four short chapters, joy, rejoicing, gladness, they're mentioned at least 19 times. And so joy is all throughout this letter. And we talked about how Paul interacted with people, that he kept them in, their, in his mind, in their heart, and in his prayers. The second week, we talked about his chains, his critics, and his crisis. And last week, Pastor Ben taught us on what perhaps is the greatest words ever written describing the humility of Jesus Christ from Philippians. This is chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, listen up, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I want you to listen very carefully today. The lower you go before God, the higher you can ascend. The lower you go before God, the higher you ascend with God. 
God longs for us to have the mind of Christ, and he has given us this gift. And Paul, Paul has a singular mind. His mindset is sold out for Jesus Christ. My mind is focused on him. My eyes are focused on him. I am focused on sharing the gospel until I go home. He is my goal. He is my objective. He has a singular mind, but he also has a submissive mind. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you, if you were on the street and somebody came up to you and looked you in the eyes and said, you need to learn to submit, would you agree with them? How about if your wife came to you, husbands, or your husband came to you, wives, and said, you need to learn to submit? What would well up in you right away? My guess is that you would feel a little defensive. My guess is you would go, well, I'm not really sure that I like that word the way that you used it. The truth of the matter is you might say to them, yes, this is true, not to you, but to God. All of us need to learn to submit. But submission has gotten a lot of bad press in our culture, don't you think? Doesn't the word come across as like a feeling of inferiority? Like you need to learn to submit to those around you who are far greater or better or stronger or more intelligent than you are. And it kind of comes off as a sense of inferiority in comparison to the people around us. Look, we've said this before. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But when it comes to God, that's a whole different story. You and I are called to humble ourselves before God so that in due time, he might lift us up. The problem is the culture tells us we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You know, Nike, they, 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 they just coined this little phrase, and I think it's probably in the heart of every man, woman, and child around us, just do it. Can you say that with me? Just do it. Doesn't that feel really good? Like, especially if you're a humanist, you can kind of go, I'm just going to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but the things that I really want to change in my life that are in my heart from God, when I say, I'm just going to do it, I go out there and I fall on my can time and time and time again. Why? Because I'm trying to do it in my own strength. God says, Jeff, you need to learn to submit to me. For then I will guide you in my purpose and I will give you my power. And you will know my promises are true. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 2 in verses 12 through 18. Really, I'm supposed to go through 30, but as I looked at this chunk of scripture, I said, there's no way I can teach through 30 today. I'm just teaching through 18. So that's a little bit of chunk you can take at home on your own. But we're going to go from 12 to 18 today. And I'm, I'm going to pray again for us. So please join me as I pray. Father, thank you that your word is active and alive, sharper than any double edged sword, piercing our hearts dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit, revealing to us the thoughts and deep motives of our hearts. God, we ask today that you would help our focus to be singular on you and that you would not only give us that singular mindset, Lord, but a submissive mindset, a mind and a heart that bows down to you and one that whispers with great integrity, that simple yet very dangerous prayer. Lord God, have your way in me. Help us to hold nothing back, God, for you are trustworthy and you are good and you are God. We pray this all in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
Now, I want you to understand thing as we look at submission today. Um, the truth of the scripture is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in him. That's what the word of God says. So God calls you to go on mission with him. If you're here and you're in Christ Jesus, you weren't saved just for your own salvation. Although God loves you so much that he would have died just for you. But he didn't just save you so you can rest in your salvation. He saved you to send you on mission for the cause of the kingdom. And God is the greatest military genius that ever will or ever was. he's, He's the greatest military mind. You are in a spiritual battle, by the way. And God, as our king and as our general, he did not send us on a mission without first giving us his provision. You see, he equips us to actually go on this mission, and he has given us everything we need for life and godliness in him. So today, we're going to look at this passage from Philippians 2, and I want you to understand right up front what his provision for you is. He's given you a purpose to achieve. Can you say that? A purpose to achieve. He's given you a power to receive, a power to receive, and promises to believe and promises to believe. We're going to do that again because you're sleepier than I am this morning. I don't know what's going on there. He's given you a purpose to achieve. Say that. A power to receive and promises to believe. Now, little things like this, some people think they're kind of cute. Oh, three Ps, okay, all that stuff. That's the pastor thing, right? I remember stuff this way. It's easier for me to hold on to, and I can guarantee you something. When you dig into God's word with God's spirit and you trust him to bring revelation to you through the word, you will see that he has given you in every passage a purpose to achieve. He's given you power to receive, and he's given you promises to believe. The question is, are you spending time in the word of God? With the Spirit of God, we'll get there in a few minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and read for you then in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Yeah, through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's part of God's purpose. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's his power. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Does everybody agree that we live in a warped and crooked generation? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. God's purpose. As you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. That's part of God's promise. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You see, God reveals to us much in these short verses, and I want to spend some time digging them, digging into them today. So let's take a look first at our definition of biblical joy. Remember in that first week we defined it, it consists of a deep and abiding confidence that all is well 
regardless of your circumstances and difficulty. So happiness is not the same thing as biblical joy. Happiness is circumstantial. That means if you get a raise, you're happy. If you get a demotion, you're sad. Joy says, no, all is well with my soul because I am a son or a daughter of the Most High God. I have everything I need. So the the shifting sand around me moves and moves and moves. I stand on a rock. Therefore, I can sing, it is well with my soul. You see, that's what biblical joy is. It's always related to God, and it belongs only to those who are in Christ. So if you are here today, and you're not in Jesus Christ, may I beg you and plead with you. You are not here by accident. And it's not because your girlfriend bought you or your spouse brought you. I believe you are here because God brought you here. And it's because he loves you so much that he wants you to enter into his family by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So I would strongly encourage you to consider just saying a simple prayer to him like, Lord Jesus Christ, I accept your gift on the cross for me. And I ask you, come live in my heart. You see, if you just simply ask him, he'll come. Because he says, I will by no means turn away anybody who comes to me. But he's a gentleman. If you don't say to him, your will be done, eventually he's going to say to you, okay, your will be done. You don't want to have a relationship with me? Okay. See, God has given us volition, the ability to choose how and whom we will serve today. And so joy is the permanent possession of every believer. We made this point in the first week. It is not something that can be taken from you, but it is something that can be hidden from you. You have joy because you have God, but we have to trust God to seek him in such a way that he continues to reveal himself to us. So let's take a look now at these passages a little bit at a time. There's a purpose to achieve. Let me read these to you. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So let's take that first part. My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Let me ask you a question. Who are you when no one's looking? You see, Paul's saying, he's saying, you've been faithful and true even when I'm not here to watch you. What's the motivation for your obedience, son of God? Are you more concerned about how other people see you as a Christian, quote-unquote, daughter of God? Or are you actually welded to God in such a way, connected to his heart in such a way that you want to please him? Are you an impression manager? Are you someone that kind of puts on the phantom Christian suit when you're around other believers, but when you're alone and nobody is looking, you're a very different person? Paul is saying, not only in my presence did you obey, but even more so when I wasn't around. You see, he's pointing out that the purpose of our obedience and the the motivation behind our obedience should not be our image. 
It should be our relationship with God. So my question to you first this morning is, who are you when no one's looking? You know who was really into maintaining images in the day of Jesus, don't you? The Pharisees. You know, they were, they were the professional religious people of that time. I think I may have shared for you in the past, when we first started and launched this church years ago, I had a young man come up to me and said, Pastor, what's your greatest temptation? How can I pray for you? And I think he might have thought I would have said, well, lust, which is true for most guys, a lot of women too. And I'm not saying without void of temptation in that area, praise God, I have victory in that area. But you know what I told him? I said, please pray that I do not become a religious person. Please pray that I am not sucked into the vortex of organized religion. Please pray that I keep my relationship with Jesus Christ alive. Because my greatest temptation as a pastor is to rely on some traditional thing and for this thing to become dried up and void of any real life or power. Folks, if that becomes true for me, I would just go rather dig a ditch for Jesus Christ. This has got to continue to be a relationship. But the Pharisees, they were professional religious people of the day. And you know what they did? They developed a form of like self-righteousness that was artificial. And it was unlike the righteousness that God wanted to give them in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus got really angry. And he hated this form of self-righteousness the Pharisees had. Why? I mean, he called them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, broods of vipers. You take one disciple and you make him twice as fit for hell as you are yourself. You want to tick off a religious person, you say stuff like that to them. Can you, you wonder what the modern day vernacular is for you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers? I think he was cussing them out. That's just me personally. I can't imagine saying it in a really nice way. <laughs> oh, you're such a brood of vipers. No, 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 this dude made a whip. He was throwing over tables. He was filled with zeal for the house of God. God is passionate for you. He's not passionately against you. He's passionate for you. He loves you so much, and he loved these Pharisees. And he got so angry, he said, look, you're the people that are supposed to represent me, and you're missing it. You're, 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 you're washing the outside of the cup, and the inside of the cup's dirty. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but in the inside you're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, when Jesus says things to them, like, first, clean the inside of the cup, you know what he's saying? Change your hearts. Change your heart. Now, if they heard him clearly, if they responded to him as Messiah, they could have, with honesty and integrity, said to them, we know, Lord, our hearts are wicked, but we can't change them ourselves. Can you please change our hearts? And then you know what he would have said? Gladly, with joy. I'm not only going to change your heart, I'm going to replace your heart. I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you the very heart of God. 
because you submitted yourself to me. But see, this wickedness that wants to kind of rule the roost, that's in every single one of us. And we want to rise above our dependence on God and be God ourselves. And God says, a lot is up for grabs with me. But my job is not one of them. I'm God and you're not. Be still and know that you can't even change your own life, more or less the life of anybody else. And you desperately need me. And there's no shame in that because I created you to be in dependence with me. So this is what would happen if they had turned to him, but they didn't. And this helps us understand what Paul is going on when he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now look, let's first look at what he's not saying because there's potential for misinterpretation in these words. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. That's very different. If he was to say work for your salvation, that would be in contradiction to the entire good news of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is it's not by works that we're saved. It's by grace through faith that you have been saved. Say that after me, by grace through faith. A lot of people get that mixed up. They say through faith. It's not through faith. I mean, sorry, it's not by, gra- by faith. It's by grace through faith. Say it again. By grace through faith. You see, alone. It's the grace of God and we receive We believe and we receive. We just say, yes, God, I receive, I believe in you. And he says, okay, you're in my family. What? Don't I have to do something? Nope, there's nothing you could do. Well, don't I have to do something? No, I already did it all on the cross for you. Well, it can't be that simple. Oh, no, it is that simple and it's that beautiful too, but it's that scandalous. It's scandalous grace. It's grace so scandalous that God would become man and die for you and me and then say, now I want you to come back into my family. Just say yes to me. Just believe and receive and I will come make your heart my home and I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and I will give you my very heart and my very mind and I will live in you and I will grow in you and I will make you shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation. See, this is what God is saying to us. He's saying he loves to come and live in a human heart. And you know, I know a lot of Christians, they seek miracles. They seek healings. And and I'll tell you, God does healings in this day and age. I really do believe that he performs miracles. But can I tell you the greatest miracle? The greatest miracle is a changed heart. That's the greatest miracle. So while we can thank God for healing somebody's arm or healing someone's heart or taking cancer out of their body, I would much rather have my cancerous heart removed. And replaced with his heart, with his mind. That's the greatest miracle, that he would come and save a wretch like me. So he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. Now this word, in context, is a a word that was used during that time for working a mine or working a field. If you're in a mine, you're going to work it so you can get all the precious metal there is out of it or all of the iron ore out of it. Let's say, let's work that mine. So you're going to work it out. In a field, you're going to work so you get the maximum yield of a crop. You're going to harvest it in such a way that you're going to work it out. Now look, you're under no impression that you created the precious gems 
or the iron ore. You're under no impression that you created the corn or the crops that you're harvesting. All you're doing is working it out with fear and trembling. And what God is saying is, I want you to maximize the provision I've given you so that you shine like lights in a warped and crooked generation. I want you to work out what I've already given you. You already own it. Just work it out. It's accessing the riches that are already yours. Now, I'm going to say something to you. You've got to listen up. If you're in Christ Jesus, you are far richer than you know. Your riches are incomprehensible. And you have yet just to begin to tap into them. I've been walking this walk with Jesus for 30-some years. I'm just beginning to tap into the riches that I have in Jesus. He says, oh, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? He says, just taste, just taste, and then you'll never want what the world has to offer again. And yet my wayward flesh still goes back to the ways of the world. And yet Jesus in his faithfulness chases after me with his loving kindness and tender mercies and says, come on back. I'm going to tell you a story. I've told it before, but please indulge me, those of you who have been around for 11 years. This is one of my favorite stories when it comes to this, this point. It's about a man named Yates. Yates lived in the 30s, 1930s, during the Great Depression. He had a large field in Texas. It was a sheep ranch, and he owned it, but he wasn't earning enough money out of his ranching operation to even make his mortgage payments. He was in danger of losing the ranch. He had little money for clothing or food. He had a large family. So like many others during the Depression years, he lived on a small government subsidy. Day after day, Yates would watch his sheep as they grazed on the hills of this vast land, trying to rack his brain to figure out a way. How can I provide for my family? One day, a crew of men from an oil company came, and they knocked on Mr. Yates' door. And he's like, yeah, what are you doing here? And they said, well, look, uh, we think there may be oil underground. Would you allow us to drill? And Mr. Yates thought for only a moment, and he said, well, what do I got to lose? I'm going to lose the ranch anyway. Yeah, go ahead and drill. The very first day that they drilled, it was a test drill. They were at 1,100 feet, and the driller struck one of the largest oil deposits in the whole North American continent. That tap alone was drawing 80,000 barrels of oil a day. By the 1960s, after oil had been pumped for more than 30 years from Yates' property, 30 years, a government test showed that just one of his wells was still producing 125,000 barrels of oil per day. Now, some of you would say, this is a rags-to-riches story. That Mr. Yates was so poor and he became rich all of a sudden. And I would venture to say to you that that's not absolutely true. Mr. Yates was rich the whole time. He just didn't know it. You know why? He didn't go deep enough. He didn't go deep enough. He stayed on the surface of life. And you know what your enemy wants to do? Keep you busy with shuffleboard on the surface of your life. The enemy wants to keep you busy with hosting little dinner parties where you're going to impress people around you or driving fancy cars or just saving enough money to buy the house that you want or maintaining your image in some way. The enemy wants to keep you busy on the superficial level of your life so that you do not go deep. Why? There's oil underground. And if you go there with God, if you go there with God, I can guarantee you that he will bring up a gusher that's going to continue to give oil for ongoing like you would not believe. 
You see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this amazing gift that God gives us. And when we trust him in such a way to go deep with the Holy Spirit, take the hand of God and go deep into the word of God with the people of God, he reveals the riches of the kingdom to us. And we start to experience joy and peace beyond comprehension. And then we start to shine like lights in a warped and crooked generation in a way that's very peculiar to us. We don't even know that we're shining. You know what Jesus went to the sheeps and the goats? And he says to the sheep, hey, you visited me in prison. You clothed me when I was naked. You fed me when I was hungry. And they go, hey, hey when, Lord, did we do these things? They didn't even know. You know why? They were just shining. They were just shining. They were just being who they were in Christ. And it was just like this almost unconscious experience of trusting the Lord in such a way that they were shining. And God said, you're, you're my people. I'm your God. You see, God calls us to understand something. Mr. Yates had a problem. He didn't know that he was so rich. And so many of us who are in Christ, we have the same problem. We don't know that we're rich. So how do you access the riches of God? The simple answer is by faith. I give it to you as clear as I possibly can this morning. I can, I can make a much you know, more complex issue of it, but I want to tell you right up front, if you want to access the riches of God, it's by faith. You must trust God. You don't believe me? Read Hebrews 11. Some people call it the hall of faith. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the insurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command. By faith, Abel bought a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended for his righteousness. And by faith, Abel still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, Noah, when warned of these things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going I'm going to emphasize that again even though he did not know where he was going I just want to help you understand something again when God tells you to do something he's not going to give you the whole road map he's not going to do that he's going to say go to the stop sign turn left and you're like God can you please tell me what's three blocks down he's like no why, God, why? Because if I told you, you wouldn't go. Just go. I will be with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What he said to Moses, Moses, Moses. He's reasoning with his son. He says, Moses, I will go with you and I will give you rest. That's what your soul's longing for. The sense of security that only comes from knowing God. But see, with faith comes this little word called acceptance. We accept what comes to us because we know that God will eventually use it all. Paul goes on to say this, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God in this warped and crooked generation. Now, in the first week, I, I taught you a little song. Do you remember it? You're going to sing it with me again, so get ready. Remember? Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice and again I say rejoice. 
we got a little work to do. <laughs> Come on, sing it like you got a, a stein in your hand, not full of beer, but full of heavenly, I don't know, something. All right, ready? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. All right, so here's the next one. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. All right, you get it one more time for me, and then you're singing it. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. All right, our turn together. Ready? Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. Now, some of you are saying, these are kids' songs. You're all God's kids. And kids' songs are used to take the word of God from the head to the heart. You sing it. Every time you get an opportunity to sing the word of God, you sing it. You know how I learned Psalm 23? Keith Green. Keith Green is a messenger of God, right? He's one of God's boys, man. He was awesome. And he sang this song, the 23rd Psalm, and I loved the song. And I listened to it over and over again, and I sang it. And I didn't even know I was memorizing the whole psalm, right? You let the word of God get into your head and go to your heart. You sing that word. See, so, so this is one way for us to do it. And the scripture says, do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing. Why does God say this to us? Listen, he's setting a, a divine pattern for finding joy in submission. He's setting a divine pattern for finding joy in submission. Now, part of this divine plan has to do with acceptance. You see, whatever God allows to come to us as part of God's provision for us, we accept in light of what is to come. We accept it. Therefore, we don't complain and we don't argue. A lot of our complaining and arguing comes from a lack of acceptance. Now, I want you to take a little inventory this week, and Tracy and I have been ramping up on this one already. How much of the time that you speak, either verbally or in your mind, falls into the category of complaining or arguing? I would like for you this week, if you're serious about trusting the Lord, to walk and take a little inventory. Hopefully you have a little journal. If you don't, I'd encourage you to get one. This is, besides my Bible, this is my most important book because this is where I talk to God. But you can take a little inventory of how often you complain and how often, you know, you argue with others. And you got to know that what you sow, you reap. That's a scriptural principle. If you're sowing complaining, if you're sowing arguing, those are the seeds you're scattering, you're reaping a harvest from them. And I want you to know the harvest, biblically, is very clear, but it's also scientifically proven. Research shows that, that most people complain once, once a minute during a typical conversation. So if you have a 60-minute conversation, most people complain at least once per minute. So you've complained 60 times in an hour conversation. 
That's the average. Complaining is tempting because it feels good. It's like many other things that are enjoyable, like smoking or eating a pound of bacon for breakfast. Anybody love to eat a pound of bacon for breakfast? Oh my gosh. Bacon is amazing. God made that pig so tasty, it's incredible. But you know what? Eating a pound of bacon is not a good idea for breakfast. Did you know that? A half a pound, Bonnie? No, I don't, I don't think. There's a lot of things that feel good that are not right. And your, love, your brain loves efficiency. And, and so your neurons, these are the firing mechanisms in your brain, they grow closer together. And the more that you do certain things, they, for, they form neural networks. They say neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you're a complainer or if you're an arguer, you are firing neurons that create information highways where, where that kind of behavior flows unimpeded. It rewires your brain. You become rewired for negativity, and negativity becomes your default behavior. You're being conditioned. It damages your brain, literally. Research from Stanford also shows that it shrinks the hippocampus. That's an area of the brain that's critical to problem solving and intelligent thought. And they believe a lot of this may have some effect and lead to Alzheimer's. We don't really know. But, but here's the thing. The more you complain, the more that you argue, the more that you're damaging your brain. Because you're actually creating information highways where negative traffic flows unimpeded. And you often wonder, why am I so scattered? Why am I so consumed with worry? Why am I so filled with fear? As a person thinks, the scripture says, so is he or she. And the scripture tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to take every thought captive to Christ Jesus. See, complaining leads to brain damage. And when you complain, your body releases stress hormones, cortisol. It shifts you into a flight or fight mode. And the effect of cortisol is to raise your blood pressure and your blood sugar so that you're like trying to defend yourself. And all this has this incredibly negative effect on even our physical health, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cholesterol. All this stuff can be affected by this. Now look, God's word is not the ramblings of a cosmic killjoy. God's word is a love letter to you. So when he tells you things like this, do everything without complaining, do everything without arguing, he's not trying to rain on your parade. He's trying to usher you into joy. But your, your response to him needs to be the one that we kind of set in place for the Pharisees had they had done it. Lord, I can't, I can't change my own life. I can't, I can't stop complaining. Can, will you please help me? Oh, yes, with joy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus says, surely, just come to me. Well, how do you come to him? You come to him through his word, through his spirit, through his people. I've got to keep saying that over and over and over again until we all get it. Now, look. We got to practice this acceptance thing because you got to accept the circumstances and the people around you as part of the plan to perfect you. I'm going to say that again. You got to accept the circumstances and the people around you as part of the plan to perfect you. And when you do that, you realize God is using these things, even the most irritating, like dogs barking at five o'clock in the morning. I thought about that this morning because you know what? When I heard them bark, my attitude immediately went to complaining. My attitude immediately went to blaming them and my wife because my dear wife did not get out of bed when they barked. 
And I have a little inner dialogue that I do on a Sunday morning in my mind that goes, doesn't she know that I, need to, that I have to teach this morning? Doesn't she know that? Oh my gosh, this is so inconsiderate. And then I realize God says, Jeff, get out of bed and let the dog out. But God, Jeff, I'm perfecting you. But God, if I go, I'll be weak. I won't have enough sleep. And he goes, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Get your butt out of bed and let the dog out. Okay, God. All right, God. I'm walking. I don't like it. Right now, I don't like my dogs. I don't like my wife, but I'm going. I'm not even sure I like you. He goes, that's okay. Just go. Just go. You see, you got to go from this to this. Can you do that with me? This to this. That's what trust means. you got to go from this God, what are you doing? God, you're perfecting me. God, I worship you. God, I love you. I don't like this right now. God, it hurts. But you're perfecting me. You're making me whole. You see, that's, God, that's God's purpose in your life. God is far more concerned about the worker than the work. He's far more concerned about you and your heart than he is about the work. Why? Because if you get your heart right, if he finds the worker, then the work takes care of itself. You see, God's purpose is for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in him and then to shine like lights in a dark and depraved generation. And the more you accept those circumstances around you, as a way that God is trying to perfect you, the less you will complain and argue and the more joyful you will be. This will take practice. This will not happen just in one day. This will not happen just in one week. This will not happen just in one month. But if you trust God and you take an inventory and you take his hand and you walk into this and you say, God, I'm going to see these opportunities as opportunities for growth. I'm going to see this as a way of you perfecting me, and I'm not going to argue, and I'm not going to complain. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to worship and praise you. You know what's going to happen over time is that you will be lifted up. You're now humbling yourself before God. Because when you're complaining and you're arguing, you're playing God. And you're acting like the final judge of all things. God, this is so unfair. Well, who told you life was supposed to be fair? In this life, you will have much trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. So we're supposed to submit to God in such a way that he fulfills his purpose in our lives, that you would be children of God without fault in a warped and a crooked generation, that you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let me tell you something. I don't know. If you're in Christ Jesus, I suspect this is in your heart, but don't you just want to walk into the Walmart and have people see Jesus in you? Don't you, anywhere you go, don't you just want to have people see Jesus in you? And don't, don't they, you want to kind of like catch them by surprise with your light and with your salt? I'll tell you, the times that God has done this in and through me and I've allowed him to do this in and through me, I rejoice. But there's so many opportunities that I miss because I'm not practicing trust and acceptance. When people meet you, they're supposed to meet Jesus. Now, that should drive a lot of us just into our cave to be humble before God for a while. But he's faithful. He's filled with grace. And he's so patient. He's just, okay, let's try it again. Well, we did better that time. Praise the Lord. You see, he's a God who nurtures his children. I've used this illustration more than I can shake a stick at, but I'm going to use it again. How many of you have um, helped a child learn to walk? Right? 
How many of you, when the child falls, do you punt them to the curb? You, you wouldn't do that. You, I hope you wouldn't do that. If you would do that, please go to the corner over there and we're calling Child Protective Services. No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because you'd pick them up, you'd brush them off. And the scripture says, you who are evil want to give your children good gifts. How much more do you think your Father in Heaven wants to give those? You trust and love Him, right? So, so God says, okay, come on, you, you messed up. You were complaining, you were arguing again. Let's pick you up, brush you off. I love you, let's just go on. But God, don't I have to do some kind of penance? Nah, I paid for it all at the cross. Let's just go. Well, God, don't I have to earn my way back to you? Oh, no, 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 I took care of that for you. God, don't I have to bathe myself in guilt and shame? No, no, I took care. I nailed that all to the cross. Just come back to me. I love you. I don't have to whip myself with it. No, no, I love you. Just come back to me. That's all I want is to be with you. So when we, we, we're with him enough to love him enough in his word, in prayer, and even in suffering, then we understand his heart towards us, and that changes everything. You see, there's a purpose to achieve, but there's power to receive. And this power says that God works in us according to his good purpose. Listen to Ephesians 3, 20. It says this, Now to him who is immeasurably more, able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's the truth. You cannot do this in your own strength. So how do you receive this power? Here's the first step. You talk to him. You pray. The scripture says, don't worry about anything. Just talk to me about everything. Simply ask me for what you need and thank me for all that I've done. If you do, you will experience my peace, which is far more wonderful than your mind can understand. My peace will guard your heart and mind as you live your life in me. That's God's promise to you. Okay, so what do you do? You go to God in prayer, and you receive this power in prayer. Why? Because when you're communicating with God through his spirit and through his word, he tells you what to do, and then he promises you that he will give you the power to do it. And then you go. Folks, I can tell you, for years and years and years, I tried to lose weight. This is kind of a, a weird example. I didn't even think I was going to bring it up. But you know what I did? I tried to like, do all the dieting. I tried to do all this, tried to do all that, tried to do all this, tried to do all that. It never worked for any long period of time. You know what really helped me to better take care of my body, and it wasn't even about the weight, it was about taking care of my body, was prayer. It was prayer. God, I need you, I need you, Lord, to help me not turn to food as my idol. I need to help, Lord, because I run to food when my soul gets scared. I run to food when I get worried or anxious. Lord, I need to go to you. Please help me, Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a child you're struggling with, you know, Lord, you get down on your knees and you say, Lord, God, I can't do this. He says, you're right, you can't. God, what are you going to do about your kid? This is your kid before he's my kid. God, how do you want to use me in his life? And he might just give me a little prompting from his word. Go do this. Go say that. Go plant this seed. But then let me have it. You see, we've got to turn these things over to God. And one of the ways that we receive this power is through prayer but the other way is through the word of God. Now look, we gotta, we gotta continue to have this conversation about this because I really don't know how much time you're spending in the word. But I go in and out of seasons where I'm so deeply in love with God. You know what, the times that I'm more deeply and passionately in love with him is when I'm spending large amounts of time in his word. You're like, well, Jeff, you're a professional pastor. You get to spend that kind of time. Can I tell you that my time would be filled with all kinds of other things based on this, this kingdom expression? if I didn't make the time. And before I was ever a pastor, I spent hours in the Word of God. 
But I let my hands off the wheel at times, and I forget. You know, a buddy of mine years ago said, Jeff, you know, if you let your hands off the steering wheel, you don't crash right away. But eventually, you're going to crash. If you're driving down the highway and you let your hands off the steering wheel, you're not going to crash just like that. But eventually, that car's going to start going off the wall and hit a tree or a guardrail if you don't put your hands back on the wheel. There's a part for us to do, and it's called seeking God. You're supposed to seek God. Jesus says things like, ask and you'll be given. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you will be fine. You'll find. This is a premise and a promise. To every promise is a premise. And he's basically saying, here, look, come knock on the door. I'll open it up. Just seek me. You'll find me. Look for me. You'll find me. Ask. I'll give to you. He says, if, if you're a father and you, your son asks for a fish, are you going to give him a stone? <laughs> no, you wouldn't do that, but I'm your heavenly father. How much more am I going to give those who seek me? So I have in my journal this time, again, I, I, these are my memory verses here, and I have a list over here that I'm just running down through, and I can look at my memory list, and I can go, oh, Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. A premise and a promise. Right? So if we want the power of God, we need to seek relationship with God through his word, through his spirit, and yes, through suffering. That is the least popular of all of these, I would think. How many of you like to suffer? Anybody? Yeah, that's not really a very popular thing. And you know what the culture tells us? Just run from suffering all that you can. Run from suffering. Run from it. Don't. Just do everything you can to avoid any kind of pain whatsoever. Can I tell you something? Pain in the person of Jesus Christ is one of your best friends. You know why? It puts you on your can. And it helps you realize that you desperately need God. The times that you draw the closest to him are the times you're suffering the most. So just stay in a place where you know that you're desperate. And even when things are good then, you can still cry out, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You see, God has given us a purpose to achieve. He's given us power to receive, and he's given us promises to believe. Now, I could go on for this for a long time, but here's the promise. True joy comes from submitting your life to Christ. Now, everything inside of you is going to war against this because you have a flesh, and the Spirit of God wants you to submit, and therefore you'll have joy, right? But there's also your spirit of your flesh, and your flesh does not want what God wants. The Scripture is very clear. They war against each other. You not only have the flesh, but you have the enemy of God, Satan himself, and his demonic hordes. So you have to understand that if you choose to submit yourself to God, there is going to be some rebellion inside and outside of you. If you do not expect that, you need to change the way that you think about things. It is then God's power will be manifest to you in such a way that he will carry you through and he will bring you to a place of joy. So I don't know what it is for you today that you need to submit to God. But maybe you need to confess a sin. Maybe when I ask you, who are you when nobody's looking, you clearly understand what God's saying to you right now. I don't know. I don't know what that is for you. But maybe you need to find a friend. You need to confess that sin because the scripture is clear. Confess your sins to each other and pray so that you might be healed. And you need to repent. Maybe that's something you need to do. Maybe you need to ask someone for forgiveness because you've been hard-hearted towards them. 
or you've hurt them in some way, and you know you have, but you just haven't gone. It's your pride's getting in the way. God will give you the power to go. You just have to move your feet in accordance with your prayers. And it will be God who is carrying you. It will be God who's fulfilling his purpose in you. And you will witness this. You will look back and you go, surely that was God that did that. Maybe even holding off on doing something that you know God wants you to do. Maybe it's cutting up a credit card. Maybe it's paying off an old debt. I don't know what it is. Maybe your mind is so divided right now that you just need to confess before God, God, I am not focused on you. Maybe simply you just realize that you have this rebellious spirit in so many areas of your life. And God's longing to say, just submit to me. Come to me. Humble yourselves before me and I will lift you up. I can tell you this, whatever it is, it's always worth trusting God. It's always worth submitting to him because he's the one you're looking for anyway. I don't know where you're looking. If you're looking at material wealth or food or how slim and trim you look, I don't know where you're looking, but you're really looking for him because he is the only one who will actually fulfill you inside. Listen to what David says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body aches for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary. I've beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Let's lift up our hands together. Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you now, and we ask that you would help us to surrender to you. We ask now that you'd help us to lay down any other purpose but yours, any other power but yours, and any other promise but yours. And God, help us to accept the things that we can do nothing about as an opportunity for you to perfect us as we submit ourselves to you. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Let's stand together and close in worship.